Hi, good afternoon. You know, when I first um, heard of this series, I thought it was like makan sandwich, like you makan the, the sandwich. And I seriously thought it was going to be about food and, and I was quite intrigued. Then uh, I realized, as uh, Raj and Kapo have explained in previous weeks, um, that, you know, in his gospel, Mark likes to use this technique uh, where he sandwiches a story in between uh, another story. And then it got me really excited in this like nerdy, geeky way because I, I used to be a literature teacher. And, and so I was like, wow, this is Mark playing with literary structure to create meaning. Um, and so I love it. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's look at this passage today. Um, it's from Mark chapter 11, verse 12 onwards. Let me read it out first. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You know, I, I love this passage because we often think of Jesus as meek and tender and loving and humble. You know, he looks at the crowd with compassion in his eyes and, and he's feeding and teaching and serving the multitudes. He's, he's carrying babies. He has the gentle touch of a healer. And, and, and there are all these pictures of him with kind eyes and, and, and he's like a shepherd carrying the lamb. And then he's the cute baby, the Christmas baby in the manger. And, 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 and he's on the cross. You know, he's, he's humble and he's, he's obedient even to death on the cross. If you look at all these pictures, you can imagine... You know, the accompanying soundtrack, it would be like soft, gentle music, the strings, and you know, this is our saviour. And, 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 and all that is true and good. But you know, don't think for a moment that this gentle saviour king was without passion. <laughs> no, passion. Passion for his father's glory. You know, his, his meekness was just power under control. It wasn't a lack of power. And Jesus was a man of passion as well. You know, when he spoke to the, the religious leaders, he would give them straight and, and, and strong answers, like boss answers. And he wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. He was full of passion. And, and I love this passion of Jesus because I know that he passionately loves us. And it was this passion for us that made him die on the cross for us. I mean, the cross is called the passion of Christ. And in this passage, we see him full of righteous anger at what was going on in his father's house. This was the day 
that Jesus got angry. So let's look at this Markan sandwich. You know, I'm sure you can spot the sandwich, right? Jesus firstly curses the fig tree. Then he goes into the temple. He clears the temple. And then um, um, he sees the fig tree again and, and has died. It's, it's died. And, and I, I told myself to um, be careful not to turn this into a, a literature lecture. But, uh, you know, in literature, it's not just about identifying students. Take note. Um, you know, students like to write, oh, this is a metaphor. And then I will write, yes, but so what? You know, what is the effect of it? And, and, and so, yes, this is a Markan sandwich. Uh, yes, but, but why, why does Mark do this? You know, why, why make it a sandwich? And, and obviously, there has to be a connection between the bread and the meat, right? When you eat a sandwich, you eat it together. And, unless you're a bit strange, right? You eat the, the whole sandwich together. You bite everything together. And, and, and if we look at the fig tree story separately... It's a bit difficult to make sense of it. Okay, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded as a separate, a standalone story. Um, and, and, and so Jesus curses the fig tree. Uh, it withers and, and it dies. And then Jesus uses that to teach the disciples about faith and prayer. Which is kind of weird, right? I mean, if you want to teach about faith and prayer, wouldn't you be like, oh, you know, we, we prayed for this person to believe in Jesus and then we had faith and yay, he, he, he accepted Christ and that was belief and, and, and prayer. But, but this is like, we asked God to kill the fig tree and he did it, yes, faith and, and, and prayer. So it's kind of strange, it's a bit extreme and, and it is strange because you know, Jesus is usually the gentle one. If you look at him all throughout the Gospels, right? John the Baptist was the one who came and preached repentance and judgment and, 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 and all that. But Jesus came and, and he preached good news and salvation. So why was Jesus so angry here? And you know, this is Jesus. He couldn't have been just throwing a tantrum, right? Or it was just a bad mood that day, right? There has to be a reason. What is it that Jesus felt so strongly and so angrily about? And so to make sense of this fig tree story, I think we have to first look at the other story. You know, in a sandwich, um, the meat is the key thing, right? If you want to know what type of sandwich it is, you, you look at you know, the meaning of the sandwich, you look at the filling, the meat, right? Whether it's a tuna sandwich, or egg sandwich, or ham sandwich, whatever. And so it is the middle part that influences the, the taste of the sandwich the most. And it is the middle part that will give us the biggest clue about what the sandwich is about, and in this case, what the so-called theological purpose of this Markan sandwich is. So we're going to start with the meat, okay? the, the scene of Jesus clearing the temple. And to understand why Jesus was so angry, we need to examine what exactly was going wrong in the temple. Okay? What, what was wrong with the temple? And here's the first thing. Now, the temple had become an exclusive club. Okay, we read that Jesus entered the temple area and began driving people out. And this area that he entered would be the outer court of the temple. Okay, you know, um, in the temple, there would be uh, right in the middle is the most holy place. Right? Only the high priest can go inside and he can only go in uh, uh, once a year. So it would, it would kind of be like increasing levels of holiness. And so in the middle is the holy, most holy place. And then there would be a court for um, just the priest, the inner court, just the priest. And then the next court would be just for the men only. And then after that, it would be a court just for the women. And then the outer court, which is where we are here, um, is, is only for the, the Gentiles. Or rather, it's for the Gentiles. The Gentiles could only go there. And so this was the only area that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could access. It was the only place where anyone, everyone in the world could come and pray and worship God. 
But you see, how in the world would people be able to pray and worship when there was all this buying and selling going on? You know, there would have been money changers tables, there would have been animal pens, and you know that anywhere where there are animals, it's going to be noisy and smelly. And so the Gentiles would, would come in and, 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 and they would see all that. And, and, and is that what a house of prayer should look like? And so the message that the Jewish leaders were, were sending was that, well, you know, we don't really care about these Gentiles because we, we just need the space. We need the space for our activities. And there was no regard at all for the non-Jews. If you think about it, um, this should be the one place where the Jews would be reaching out and doing uh, evangelism, outreach, and, and missions. Because this is the only place that the Gentiles could enter. But would the Gentiles come and see, you know, the stinky animals and, and the money changers and, and the mess? And would they want to believe and follow this Jewish God? You know, when Jesus cleared the temple, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he was quoting this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, that says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship Him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Father's house of prayer is open to all all people, even the foreigners during this time. And it was an assurance that godly non-Jews who follow God are also accepted in His kingdom and can worship in His temple. But with all that was going on in the outer courts, clearly the religious leaders did not have this attitude. And the second thing that it became was, it became a root of convenience. You know, many people would have been going through the temple from the town to the Mount of Olives for the Passover. And, and walking through the temple was actually a convenient shortcut. And, and you know, people were not just cutting through the temple to save themselves walking a few more yards. They were also carrying all their bags and, and stuff, you know, the merchandise for buying and selling. And the Amplified Version of the Bible translates verse 16 like this, And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise or household wares through the temple grounds, using the temple area irreverently, as a shortcut. You know, just imagine we're having our worship service and then people are walking in with their shopping bags and they're like, oh, you know, we're just, just cutting through to go somewhere else. So these people, they, they weren't there to worship. They were just in the temple because it was a shortcut. And next, it had also become a place of business instead of a prayer. Verse 15 says that there was buying and selling. You know, people were, were changing money. They were buying and selling currency. Um, people were buying and selling doves and, and other animals. And they had turned it into a whole market. Now, why were there money changes in the temple? Now, remember at that time, there was only one temple in the land. Okay? There, there was no such thing as like your local church. Right? Jews from, from all over had to come to this one temple in Jerusalem. And people had to pay temple tax. Um, but they had to pay it in a special temple money, a certain currency. And so the coins had to be changed into this currency that was acceptable to the temple authorities because the religious, the religious leaders would say, oh, you know, we, we can't accept all this currency from all these different areas, so you have to change into this money. And, and so there were money changes. But you know, the charge for the exchange was something really exorbitant, like half a day's wage. But 
what do you do? You have no choice. You, you have, as a Jew, you have to pay the temple tax. So there were money changers. And why were there people selling animals in the temple? Well, because people would need the animals to offer as sacrifices. And there were Jews who came from great distances and they couldn't uh, you know, bring all the animals along the, the, the long journey. And so they had to buy sacrificial animals near the temple. But there was another reason why people had to buy the animals inside the temple instead of outside the temple. And this was that the priests would inspect your animals before, before you could offer them. And you know, there mustn't be the slightest flaw because you are offering them to God, right? And that's why they had to make sure that the sacrifice was acceptable. And so people had to buy these perfect temple-approved doves from inside the temple. And of course, they were much more expensive. You know, it's like in the movies, you can only buy food or drinks that the cinema sells. And so you end up buying like, you know, just like a drink and popcorn for like $15, which is like more than your movie ticket. You can only buy from inside because it is temple approved. And, and I think Mark specifically mentioned doves, doves being sold in verse 15, because doves were what the poor people sacrificed. In Leviticus, it says that if a person cannot afford a lamb, then he used to bring two doves or two young pigeons. And you see, so God already made exceptions for the poor. And yet here were the religious leaders still exploiting them. You know, some historians estimate that the high priest and, and his, his kakis, uh, they, they charged as much as 10 times the normal worth of a sacrifice. They were taking advantage of the people and it was especially bad for the poor people. And so there was all this business going on inside the temple that there was in fact not, not, not just business, it was exploitation on a wide scale. The religious leaders had, had found a way to make huge profits of the worshippers who came to the temple. And that's why Jesus was so angry at what was being done in his father's house. People were treating it like a shortcut. The leaders had, had no regard for, for the Gentiles. They acted as if the temple was some exclusive club and leaders were exploiting the people. And the reason why Jesus got so angry can probably be summed up in verse 17 when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple had become a den of robbers. You know, a den of robbers um, actually refers to a, a cave where the robbers would hide and then spring out at travelers, at the unsuspecting travelers, um, making the journey. And as I've mentioned, you know, some of these Jews would have to travel long distances to get to the temple. And so they would have to make these long journeys and, and, and they weren't particularly safe, these long journeys, because you could, be, um, you could meet these robbers, these bandits, you know, you could run into a den of robbers. And so here were these Jews, they, they had come to Jerusalem, they got inside the temple and they think, okay, we're safe now, you know, we've made the journey to the house of God and now we're safe. But actually in the temple, there were more crooks waiting to rob them of their money, just that they were disguised as, as money changers or, or temple dove sellers. And they were actually robbing people of their money and robbing the temple of its sanctity. Now, if we look at um, Jeremiah 7, which is where Jesus is quoting from when he says, a den of robbers. You know, the passage is really about religious hypocrisy, about coming to the temple to worship and thinking that that is enough as a cover for sin in our lives. 
Jeremiah 7 says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. We are safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? And so just like in Jeremiah's time, these leaders were, they were violating the covenant laws outside the temple. And then they would come into the temple and, and, and worship and, and think they are safe. And so what Jesus was so angry about, why he got so angry, was that these leaders, they put on a cloak of religious respectability to hide their sin, to hide their exploitation of people, their lack of reverence and true worship, to hide their greed. And the temple had become a place of Praying, P-R-E-Y, praying and paying instead of praying, P-R-A-Y. And you know the thing about hypocrisy is that it is often found in those who are most knowledgeable about spiritual things, like the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. You know, if we had interviewed any of the merchants that day selling their stuff, each one of them would probably have defended their right to to, to be there, you know, they would have said, um, oh, we provide an essential service and a, and a ministry to the worshippers, you know, our money-changing ministry. We make things convenient for them, you know, so that they wouldn't have to hurt their sheep and cattle all the way. It's, it's the loving thing to do. We're, we're serving them, we're helping them. And it would have been easy to, to rationalize and, and justify all that buying or selling. And sometimes it's very easy for us to rationalize and, and justify certain things that we do. For example, it can be easy to rationalize and justify bending the rules and not following the law regarding the use of church funds to facilitate a gospel aimed at, a project aimed at preaching the gospel. And what the merchants in the temple wouldn't mention would be the huge profits that they were making. But you know, Jesus saw through all this veneer of religious helpfulness and, and, and so-called service because all this buying and selling, it flowed from a love of money, not the love of God and, and, and the love of His people. And this greed was made worse because they made it appear as religion and as service. It was religion used as a front for greed. And so Jesus got so angry because His Father was not being worshipped. It was money and greed that was being worshipped. And you know, throughout the Gospel, Jesus constantly points out the hypocrisy of religious leaders. In Matthew, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You know, the temple should have been the most holy place. The temple is the place where the Messiah should have been first recognized. It's the place where the Messiah should have been most likely to be recognized. And the religious leaders should have been the first to recognize the Messiah because they've spent so much time in the house of God. They've spent so much time studying the scriptures. You know, they, they tie it to their foreheads and all that kind of thing. And yet they were completely blind to the living, breathing Christ in front of them because their self-seeking hearts and this deadness to spiritual reality was what drove them to destroy the temple and make it into a den of robbers. And it was this self-seeking heart and, and this deadness to spiritual reality that drove them to constantly find ways to destroy Jesus, the real temple. In our passage, we see in verse 18 that they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. And why did they fear him? 
because of his popularity. He was a threat to them because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So, having looked at all that was wrong in the temple, the natural question for us to ask ourselves today is, is whether we are guilty of any of these in the church. And, and I think this is not just something for the leaders of the church to think about, but, but for each of us as a part of this church and, and, and not even just as, as a part of PPH, but as a part of the, the big church, the larger body of Christ, as Christians, part of God's church at large. What is our attitude and what is our heart when we think about church, when we do things in church? If Jesus came here, what, what changes would he make? Would he get angry? You know, has, has the church become a place of business where everything is just transactional and, and self-seeking, where everyone just thinks, well, what's in this for me? You know, is the church a den of robbers in, in any way? Have we, have we commercialized the gospel in any way? And, and I know, of course, in, in PPH, obviously we don't sell all these merchandise or like books with the pastor's face on them or CDs that church members must buy, multiple copies of. We just sell the red t-shirts for $10. Um, but, but you know, the point here is, is, is really not to judge what other people do or, 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 or it's really not about the books or CDs or, or things that are being sold, but, but really to carefully consider whatever we do in church. Like, is there a self-seeking attitude? Is there any hypocrisy? Is there any self-righteousness? And do we, like the religious leaders, attend church or we, you know, we serve in church and then we're happy to just use that as a cover for the real sin in our lives? You know, when we gather as a church, as a body of Christ, are we truly a house of prayer as we should be? Or is church prayer just a, a convenient, convenient shortcut for us, a convenience for us, like a shortcut, you know, just, it's just a Monday, a Sunday morning routine and we're just passing through on the way to lunch or something. And are all nations and all people welcome here? Or have we perhaps turned the church into an exclusive club, you know, a holy huddle where everything is just for ourselves and to serve our needs with, with very little regard for, for visitors or for non-Christians, the very people we're supposed to reach out to? Do we consider whether the church is, is welcoming, is seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive, or do we not care? as long as things are, are fine and good for us. And I think it's great that for three years running, we are bringing the church to Teban Gardens. And, and yes, it means that, that on Christmas Day, we won't have like an air-conditioned service in this building. And, and perhaps it's a little kind of out of our comfort zone for some of us. But you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to really serve and, and reach the community as we are called to do as a church. So please sign up to help. And, and now that we've looked at the meat, right, let's go back to the fig tree story, okay, that the account of Jesus clearing the temple is sandwiched in between. There is clearly a connection, right? Jesus comes to this fig tree. He finds no fruit because it's not the season for figs, and, uh, but he curses it. Okay, why? And why, why does he curse it and what does this have to do with the clearing of the temple? I want to suggest that the clue lies in the fig, tree, fig tree's leaves and the roots, Okay, so let's look at a fig tree. And the first thing we need to take note of is that in Scripture, the fig tree is very often a symbol of the nation of Israel. Okay, if you look at um, prophecies of, of people like Jeremiah and Isaiah, Hosea, Nahum, 
you know, Israel is often compared to a fig tree. Okay, so we can see there, you know, in Hosea, um, God says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes. And then when I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the fruit on a fig tree. In Nahum, all your fortresses, meaning in, in, in Jerusalem, Israel, are like fig trees in their, with their first ripe fruit. And so the fig tree represents Israel. But why does Jesus curse the fig tree, this poor tree, when it is not the season for figs? Okay, so here's some things that I learned about fig trees. Okay, that even though it was not the season for figs, now when the leaves of a fig tree appear, there is actually a small crop of what is called first ripe fruits, this early fruit. We can see on, on the verses there, there's, there's this thing called early fruit, and the early fruit of the fig tree, uh, the first ripe fruit. And, and these, these small figs are, are not good enough or big enough to be harvested, but, but they will be there. And so Jesus was right in expecting at least some small, little first, first ripe figs. And the other thing is this, you know, fig trees, they don't produce figs, proper figs, until all their leaves are out. But you see, this tree that Jesus cursed, this tree was already full of leaves. It was full of leaves, and so there should be some fruit. And the thing about this tree was that this tree was deceptively flaunting its pretentious green leaves in the face of a hungry Christ. When he went there, actually, there was, there was no fruit. It was... It was just nothing but leaves. And so Jesus was hungry. This fig tree with all its lush green leaves, it looked promising, but actually there was no fruit. It was You know, it, for the young ones, you know, it, was, it was not legit. It was, it was not a legit fig tree. And that's why he cursed it. He cursed it. It had nothing but leaves. It was all show. And does that sound familiar when we think about what was happening in the temple? Now, if you look at the verse just before the start of, of our passage today, just before the account, Mark eleven eleven says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He looked all around the temple at everything. But since, but since it was already late, and but since suggests that uh, he saw something and he wanted to do something, but, but he didn't because it, it was late. And I think what he saw was this, that the temple was big and beautiful and impressive. You know, it was a magnificent building. And, and it was crowded. There were many people there, which means many people gathered to worship God. Or is it? Because upon closer inspection, Jesus found that there was no fruit inside. There was actually no fruit inside, nothing to satisfy him. Because all he could find when he looked at the temple was people changing money, selling things, charging interest, exploiting the poor, using it as a shortcut. The temple was crowded with people, but no one was actually praying and worshipping, which is what they were supposed to do. And so Jesus looked around at everything and he found Nothing but leaves. Not even the small, first, ripe figs. Nothing but show. And you see the connection between these two stories lies here. That the fig tree was deceptive. Just like the temple. Just like the priests and the teachers of the law. That this leafy fig tree with all its promise of fruit was as deceptive as the temple 
with all its bustling activities, it was really just a den of robbers. This temple that looked impressive and magnificent on the outside. The leaders performing elaborate ceremonies and, and rituals and, and boasting of great knowledge and appearing religious on the outside. But inside, there was actually no fruit. And the fig tree represented the nation of Israel, which was in a sad spiritual condition. They had the form of worship, but not the heart. And it was all nothing but leaves, nothing but show. And it was this fruitlessness, this spiritual barrenness that made Jesus so angry. And that's why he cursed the fruitless tree and then he cleared this fake temple. And then when we come back to the fig tree, the disciples saw that the fig tree was withered from the roots. It was withered from the roots, meaning it was completely, utterly withered. It was dead. And if we look at the fig tree as a prophetic symbol of, of the temple in Jerusalem, then we will see the connection. Now, Jesus finds no fruit in the tree and he curses it. Jesus finds no fruit in the temple and he clears it. And if we think of the fig tree as a foreshadowing of what was happening, going to happen in the temple of Israel, when the disciples find that the tree was completely withered, completely destroyed from the roots, then we will understand that that too is prophetic, a, a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to the temple, which is total destruction. Because the temple had lost its purpose. It was not serving its purpose as a house of prayer. And you know, all these incidents, they happen in, in Passion Week, which is the week leading up to the crucifixion. And so in a few days' time after this, Jesus would literally, sorry, God would literally rip the veil of the temple and the temple would no longer be the place where people met Jesus would now bring direct access to the Father. And authentic worship would no longer be attached to the temple, to a specific place, you know, to Jerusalem. There would be no need to travel long distances just to bring that lamb or that, that, that pigeon or, or as a sacrifice because authentic worship will be found in Jesus alone. And Jesus replaces the temple which lost its purpose. Jesus was now the center of Israel's faith. And salvation is found in Him and no longer in the temple. And like the fig tree, the purpose of the temple is now withered from the roots, completely dead, because Jesus, Jesus is here. It's like when Jesus tells, you know, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, that the time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, not a specific place anymore. But the time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. This is the kind of worship and worshippers that God is looking for. Not those who only have a form of godliness, who are religious on the outside and corrupt on the inside. Because what the people did in the temple was less important than the worship that would come from their hearts. And so that's the sandwich, but what does that mean for us today? What is our response? What should our response be? And I think that there are two things that we can think about in response to all this. And the first is this. Are we individually and corporately bearing fruit? You know, in our church, and, and I'm sure in all other churches, there, there are lots of activities and programs and things going on. And, that, and that's great. But Jesus is not impressed by mere activity. 
by mere activity in the church. You know, the Bible says that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And I believe that Jesus and God is not just concerned about whether we are doing lots of things in church, whether we are serving in this and that ministry, but really how and why we do things. Because if you think about the money changers and, you know, the animal sellers, they were very busy doing what they would have called ministry. But Jesus wasn't pleased. He wasn't impressed with their service at all. And he was angry because their motives and their hearts were not right. There was no fruit. There was nothing but leaves. And so whether you are serving in, in a cool club or in loud gen or, or if you are a worship, you know, in the worship team or, or you're an usher or a CGL, you participate in, in CG and Bible study and in capping, you know, the question is not whether we are serving and participating, but how and why we do it. Whether we do it for the right reasons and with a good attitude. And is there fruit? As we participate in, in church events, as we serve, does it, make us, does it make us love God more? Does it make us love people more? Is there fruit? And you know, I believe that we have to be very careful about this today because we live in a day and age where we have, we have easy access to books and DVDs and podcasts and, and commentaries and conferences and all that. And, and many of the things can, can help us grow spiritually. And, and there's, of course, nothing wrong with all that. But do we read and listen and attend and then stop there? Or is there fruit that is being produced? Are our lives changed and transformed? Do we personally encounter in a deeper and deeper way the God that all this is supposed to be about? Or do we just take all these things and activity as a substitute for actually talking to and encountering God himself? Because if at the end of the day there is no true worship of God and there is no fruit, then it would be nothing but leaves and just mere activity. You know, as, as a church, and especially in a place like Singapore, we, we often have impressive churches. We have big, comfortable buildings, air-conditioned. We have expensive lights and, and sound system. We have lots of activity. We have lots of programs. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with all that. But at the root of it all, is there fruit? Are, or are we a church that waves deceptive green leaves to people with, with promises of God's salvation and grace and love, with promises of you know, offering the bread of life to those who are hungry, um, you know, asking people, come, look at our leaves, come and drink from the fountain of life. But inside really are people who are, are, are critical or judgmental or indifferent, self-righteous, fruitless. If we don't bear fruit, then we are no different from the hypocritical religious leaders. So we need to be constantly bearing fruit. We need to be growing in maturity and Christ-likeness. We need to be transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory and not remaining barren and fruitless in status quo. When Jesus looks at our church, when He looks at our lives, He's looking for fruit, for something that results from all that activity, all that serving, something that brings glory to God and is, is worship to God. Not, not the outward signs of, of prosperity and activity and busyness, but no one actually worshipping and glorifying God. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we as a church, as well as as individuals, are we bearing fruit? And the next thing we should ask ourselves is, are we as a church, are we truly a house of prayer? You know, prayer is central in this sandwich Jesus was so angry because the temple had lost its true purpose 
as the house of God to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then at the end of the fig tree story, Jesus' lesson to the disciples is about faith and prayer. Verse 24, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You know, the nation of Israel, the temple of Israel was supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of belief and faith in God. But all that was missing. And so Jesus cursed the fruit tree for the fig tree for fruitlessness. And you know, the only remedy for spiritual barrenness and emptiness in our lives and our church has to be a full restoration of prayer as never before. You know, we can say that God birthed the church in a prayer meeting in the upper room on Pentecost. If we look at the book of Acts, the early church, they were all about prayer. Acts chapter 1, after Jesus was taken up to heaven, the disciples gathered and they joined together constantly in prayer. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple at a time of prayer. This is when Peter heals the crippled beggar. Acts chapter 4, the apostles, they were unjustly arrested and imprisoned and threatened. And, and you know, in response to that, the church didn't write a petition or, or, or reach for some political leverage. Their response was to pray. And then after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Some explosive prayer meeting. Acts chapter 6, the apostles chose people to help with, you know, the waiting of tables and all that so that they could focus, not just on teaching and preaching, so that they could focus on prayer. Acts chapter 9, this is when Paul appears. God tells Ananias to look for a man called Saul, for he is praying. Almost as if this is the sign that this guy is now a true worshiper. He's a true believer. He's no longer that, the guy who's persecuting everybody. He's safe because he's praying. Acts chapter 11, Peter was in the city of Joppa praying. And, and then he saw the vision about you know, including Gentiles, that, that whole big sheet with all the animals. Acts chapter 12, Peter in prison again, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And then he was miraculously released from prison. He went to Mary's house where many people had gathered and were praying. It's like a non-stop prayer meeting. Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Saul and Barnabas to do my work. And so the disciples fasted and they prayed. They placed, hand on, placed hands on them and sent them off. And you know, the list could go on. Just read the whole book of Acts. Prayer was such a central part of the early church. And the first thing and the key thing they did was to pray together. And prayer was a defining mark of this church. It's constant offering up a prayer all day, every day praying. Prayer. And I believe that the church grew so quickly and, and so explosively because it was fulfilling its purpose as a house of prayer. And if the church was birthed in a prayer meeting, then shouldn't our prayer meetings be one of the most important, if not the most important, event and program in our church. What has robbed the place of prayer in our church today? You know, all our, all our songs and, and, and programs and events and, and, and sermons are fine and good, but nothing should override prayer as the definitive mark of God's dwelling and it's not just about PPH, you know, the, the temple, God's dwelling place is no longer confined to a singular building. I believe the feature that is supposed to distinguish Christians, you know, the Christian church, the Christian gatherings all around the world has to be the aroma of prayer. The house of God cannot lose its purpose, its calling, its identity as a house of prayer. 
And nothing should substitute the place of prayer in a church. And the main activity of a church has to be prayer because the main point of a church is for people to encounter God, the one whom we are praying to, to for, him, for them to encounter Him personally in prayer. And prayer is all about our relationship with God, about encountering Him. You know, nowadays with our easy access to, to books and videos, study guides, study Bibles, commentaries, devotionals, podcasts to, to help us in our spiritual journey, none of them would mean anything if we don't actually just talk to God and encounter Him, commune with Him, spend time with Him. You know, as a parent, it wouldn't make sense for me to spend lots of time reading parenting books and, you know, buying things for my kids or, like, arranging classes for them or, like, researching on the best schools for them or, or, or you know, doing lots of stuff for them if at the end of the day, I don't just spend time with them and talk to them. And it's the same with God. It doesn't make sense for us to spend an immense amount of time doing things for God or doing things related to God or, or, or kind of reading about God if at the end of the day, we don't even talk to Him and go to Him in prayer. And you know, prayer is not, it's not just about presenting our requests to God. It's not just about going to God, you know, like, like calling Him like a hot, hotline. You used to call me, I'm a sin. Okay, stop. Late night, when you, okay. Prayer is, is about communion. It's communion with God. And you know, when we truly commune with Him, then we cannot help but respond in worship of Him. And when we worship in God's house, if we want to bring Him authentic worship in spirit and in truth, then we cannot run away from prayer. You know, I love the song that we sang just now, Day and Night, Night and Day Let Incense Arise. And in Revelation, Revelations 5, it talks about the four living creatures falling down before the Lamb. And each one is holding bowls, golden bowls full of incense. And the Bible says this incense is the prayers of the saints. Our prayers are incense. They are part of our worship. One of my favorite quotes about prayer comes from this book by Jim Simbala called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And it goes like this, Desire gives fervor to prayer. The soul cannot be listless when some great desire fixes and inflames it. Strong desires make strong prayers. And the neglect of prayer is the fearful token of dead spiritual desires. There can be no true praying without desire. The neglect of prayer, if we don't pray, if we don't bother to pray, if we don't make time to pray, it shows that we have dead spiritual desires, that there's no desire in us. That's why we don't need to talk to God. And I believe that that was what Jesus was looking for and couldn't find when he came to the temple. This desire for God, this true worship, you know, this worship in spirit and in truth, this genuine seeking and crying out for God because the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. And do we have that kind of attitude when, when we come to church every week? You know, are we coming in just to fulfill our attendance or or just as a routine? Or do we come into the house of prayer, the place of communing with God, of fervently desiring and seeking Him and expecting an encounter with Him and therefore fervently praying, fervently worshipping, fervently calling upon the name of Jesus? You know, we have a, a nice church building 
to worship in. We have a brilliant church library. We have access to books and, and conferences, sermons and resources online. And, and, you know, we generally have sufficient funds. You know, we rarely are caught in situations where we, we don't have money at all. And so what is it that we lack in our church? Why are we not like the church in Acts? And, you know, this is not some judgmental or, or critical kind of questioning. You know, I ask this of our youth ministry all the time. What is it that we lack? What is it that we need? Why are we not like the church in Acts? And I believe that the key lies in prayer. Because prayer summons the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what makes a difference in all that we do. It makes all the difference in whatever we do. And so, church, we have to return to our calling to be a house of prayer and offer up not just obligatory prayer, but passionate, fervent, desperate prayer and worship in spirit and in truth. Because I believe that the real force and power of a Christian and of a church comes from our prayer life. It's how we can be truly fruitful. Because the devil is not terribly frightened by our human efforts and our human credentials and plans, but the real power comes when we lift up our hearts to God in prayer. And all the more corporately, when we ask the Holy Spirit to take over and do what only He can do. You know, over Christmas, we are praying for hearts to be changed. We're praying for evangelistic efforts. And, and only the Holy Spirit can produce the conviction necessary for conversion. It's not going to be because we sing a great song or, or we have nice towels or whatever, you know. All these will help. But it's only the Holy Spirit will produce the conviction. And that's why one of the devil's strategies is to convince us that we're doing fine. We're doing fine on our own. You know, we, we, we have some talents, we have some skills, and then we have all these plans in place, and, and we're doing fine. But that is a lie from the devil. Because when we pray, prayer acknowledges that apart from him, we can do nothing. And Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And so let's ask ourselves today, are we, are we a house of prayer? Will this be a house of prayer? Will we be a people of prayer? And as we enter Christmas season with all our various outreach events and evangelistic efforts, I believe the harvest will be reaped by prayer. You know, whatever we want to do or see as a church, it has to be accompanied. It will only be accomplished if we become a fervent house of prayer. So church, let's together be praying for all these Christmas outreaches. You know, let's just cry out for a move of God, for Him to touch hearts and change lives. It has to be Holy Spirit. And at the end of the day, you know, we can do Bible study on prayer. We can go for prayer seminars and workshops. We can read devotionals on prayer. We can listen to sermons on prayer. But it's not prayer until we actually just pray. And you know what? I know that prayer can sometimes be challenging for those of us who like to live in the fast lane. And, and those of us who, like me, you know, you have that overachieving, overproductive drive. Like, let's go. Let's get things done. And, and, and when we pray, it's, it's very often not, not visible and tangible results. And we don't see it immediately. And, and I used to be really not into this, like, I, I used to, like, not be into this whole, like, 
solitude and prayer and waiting on God. Because, you know, I'm, I'm like, a, let's, let's do things, let's do things, let's go, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, we can pray, but, you know, let's also use the time to do what needs to be done for God because there's so much to do. And I've come to realize that especially in doing ministry, you're praying for people, you're praying for things like a Christmas outreach, you're doing God's work, that if you don't call upon the Lord for His help and His miracle, that no human activity will accomplish very much. It would be nothing but leaves. No fruit will come out. In my own journey of, of becoming more prayerful and, and really learning to, to pray more, I've experienced that the more I pray, the more God reveals things to pray about. And the more God puts burdens in me, a desire and a hunger in me, and therefore, from there, I am driven to pray more. And you know, there are so many ways to pray. You know, on a corporate level, we have uh, in church, we have our Wednesday prayer meetings. Um, we have breakthrough prayer. Um, you know, you can, join a cell, you can join a prayer group. You can sign up to be an intercessor for Christmas. You can be praying in your CG. You can um, start a prayer group in your office, in your school. The, the bottom line is, the more we want to do as a church, if we want to grow and we want to see God move, then the more we need to pray. And of course, on an individual level, we all can and should be spending time every day in prayer. And it's really not complicated, actually. I always tell the youth this, you know, that the secret to prayer is just to pray. So let's make sure that the house of God is a house of prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And, and, and of course, we have to end this service with a time of prayer. And so let's rise. Let's rise and let's come to God in prayer. As we stand corporately, we come to Him individually. And let's just come to Him in prayer and, and, and commune with Him and encounter Him today. And let's ask God for fruitfulness in our lives. You know, both individually and corporately as a church. Let's ask for fruit that when Jesus looks at our life, He will find fruit. Let's ask for, for a deeper desire and a hunger for Him. A heart that, that, that genuinely seeks Him and cries out for Him. You know, a heart that, that worships in spirit and in truth. Strong desires make strong prayers. So let's ask God to stir a desire in our hearts to stir a hunger for Him. And when we have that hunger and that desire, then prayer will flow out naturally. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come. Longing just to be. Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. Bring you more than a song. Bring us back to the heart of worship. The heart of worship, the 
spirit and in truth. Where it's all about you. constantly be, be communing with Him. We will be constantly encountering Him. We will not be caught up with activity and, and, and stuff that we're doing. We forget to pray. The prayer will be the central place in our lives, both individually and as a church. Let's ask God to make us a house of prayer. As a church, we will really be house of prayer with a defining mark every time we gather it's the offering of the incense of prayer to him it's the offering of our, our true heart's worship in spirit and in truth that is constantly calling upon the name of Jesus. It's asking for a deeper desire and a hunger for Him. Strong desires make strong prayers.
let's end by corporately calling upon the name of Jesus as we go into the Christmas season. Let's come and say, God, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to move in hearts of people. And we know that it's not going to be because of the human things that we do, the plans that we make, even though all that is good. God, we need you most of all. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Come and flood the hearts of, of every everyone who comes into the church, who comes to, to Teban Gardens. Holy Spirit, would you come and do your work? Let's corporately lift up our prayers to God. we come before you, we stand as a church and God, we acknowledge that there is nothing that we can do without you. God, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. So Holy Spirit, would you come in and touch our church? Would you come and stir our hearts? Stir our hearts to call upon the name of Jesus. Stir our hearts to desire you more. And God, would you stir the hearts of everyone who will be coming into our doors for Christmas? God, would you stir your hearts and move in your hearts in a way that only you can? The Holy Spirit, would you speak and convict that the Word of God will, will connect spirit to spirit. And so God, we look to you. We look to you as we go into the Christmas season, as we seek to proclaim your name and reach people for you. God, we look to you. As we seek to serve you and do your work, we look to you and we say, God, we need you. We need you, Holy Spirit. So Father, be with us. Help us to be people who bear fruit in our lives. Help us to be a people of prayer. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Service is over. You can proceed downstairs for lunch. <laughs>